Do not be the person who always plans the company picnic. I'm here with Pam Hendrickson, who is the COO and Vice Chairman of <laughs> uh, Strategic Initiatives. Awesome, here at the Riverside Company. So what's, I mean, just for, let's just kind of start with Riverside. What is Riverside? I mean, everyone knows the name, but maybe just like, what's the, what's the high level on it? So Riverside is a multi-strategy private equity firm, and our specialty is focusing on small deals. When I say small, so lower end of the middle market, enterprise value below 400 million. We have four buyout funds, two in North America, one does companies with about 10 million, sub 10 million of EBITDA, one does companies 35 million to 10 in EBITDA, uh, a pan-European buyout fund in Europe, and a pan-European buyout fund in Australia. Okay, so, and we also have a couple of other strategies that, that invest in different parts of the capital structure. So the common element is small companies, yeah. but it's all about um, you know, whether it's minority investing, we have a fund that does that, or straight up credit. Yeah. So, so we do different things. What is, what's the name of the credit fund? Riverside Credit Solutions. Um, and then there's royalty financing for B2B software. So um, much less dilutive than uh, venture. So. That's really cool. cool. I, I I was less aware of the different. Well, yes, strategies. because we've been around for a long time, and everybody knows us as a bio firm. But we have all these other things that we do too. So, how many companies has Riverside invested in? Over since we started. Yeah. Over six hundred. So. That's so insane. You, yeah, you name it, we've kind of seen it. <laughs> wow, that's really cool. Um, what's your story with Riverside? So I came to Riverside in 2006 from J.P. Morgan Chase, where I had been for the prior 22 years, having started when I was four. <laughs> um, you know, I've, I basically have spent my whole life in finance, and I came to Riverside uh, mostly because of the people, and also, you know, in the banking world, which you know well, um, we I had done a whole bunch of mergers. And at one point, I ran a department where I had, you know, 60% of the department had to be laid off. And I just, I really wanted to go someplace that was going to grow and not someplace that had to shrink. So what, you got here in 2006? Yeah, so it will be about, it will be 14 years next February. What, what was Riverside like back in 2006? So Riverside was small. I mean, there were probably 50 people here and maybe we had... We had a billion dollars. Um, today we have nine billion and two hundred and twenty people, and all you know we're sort of all over the world. Um, you know the infrastructure. It was important to sort of think about the infrastructure of Riverside at the time because it was clear that Valence were really wanted to scale the firm, and you couldn't scale it on this kind of infrastructure that just couldn't support it. Um, as an example, QuickBooks was being used for financials. On a billion dollar. Yeah, and probably that wasn't the ideal. I mean, it worked. It worked fine. Hey, you're, li you're living actually, the whole thesis of small business, hey, right? Exactly. And it actually worked <laughs> fine. It's just that it wasn't, it wasn't going to scale. Um, we built our own portfolio management system because at the time, 
you know, iLevel and some of the other big systems out there that do portfolio financial capturing for firms yeah. just didn't exist. So, so, and because we were such a high volume shop, we just had to do something because we couldn't, living on Excel was not going to, you know, that, as they say in the South, that dog don't hunt. So uh, we weren't going to, we, we just couldn't continue that way. So where, where are you from? What's the, what's the story? So I am from uh, New York City. I currently live 10 blocks from where I grew up. So you can either go with no progress or deep roots. So I'm <laughs> going to go with deep, deep roots. roots. Uh, but, um, you know, people, this is an interesting phenomenon, right? People have said to me over the course of my life, you know, as I was, how could you possibly have raised your children in New York City? But the truth is, for a working couple, New York is great. Yeah. Um, because, A, if you need to go be library mom, you can leave and come back to your office and, you know, people will hardly know you are gone uh, versus needing to take a train or take a whole day off or a half day off. And you can, I mean, it will cost you money, but you could get anything you need um, delivered day or night. And the labor pool is excellent, you know, so if you need help with nannies or whatever. What was it like being a parent and managing the career that you have? How did, how did you and the family find balance? Did you find balance? You know, what, what has that been like? I mean, the art, the art of marriage right here. Um, you know, it, it's... Uh, it's so funny because sometimes, you know, Doug and I sometimes still hold hands walking down the street and we've been married for 32 years. And so people are like... Really? <laughs> but um, I, I, I think part of it is I didn't really think about it. I mean, we, you know. Was there a give and take in terms of like, oh, okay, absolutely. for five years we're focused on you. For five years we're focused on Doug. It wasn't or that obvious. I think it was, it was more, and I always say this to young women, that you, it is important to marry someone who's a good partner. It, or, or be with someone who's a good partner regardless of what it is. Because... You need to have someone who's willing to change diapers and who's willing to sort of work with you. If I have to travel, then maybe Doug's not traveling or maybe Doug is traveling and I'm not traveling. When the, I mean, now the children are yeah. out on their own so we can do what we want. But um, <laughs> but I, I think, I, I don't think balance is a, as good a word as integration. And, and technology has really enabled integration because I think today, where when I was younger, I used to have to sit in the office and wait for you know Asia to call. Now I could be anywhere, and Asia can call me. Doug is just a, he, he's a great partner, and I think the other thing is that when you have a partnership like that, you're both working. It's a very give and take sort of thing. Your children develop great relationships with both parents, which I think is terrific. Um, you know. I think it naturally happens that people take responsibility for certain things. So in our family, I love to cook, so I tend to do the cooking. Doug does all the dishes. Same here. Yeah. You know, um, Doug likes cars, so he's in charge of the cars. You know, there's just things like that. I'm in charge of vacations because I'm really I travel a lot, and so I'm very you know good and savvy at travel. So. You know, I think naturally you'll sort of take the things that you like and that you're good at. So one thing that my mother once told me, which was a really great piece of advice, is it is about quality of time, 
not as much quantity. And part of the reason, I mean, my our children probably grew up in a slightly paramilitary organization relative to how parents are today. Um, you know, when I say bed, that means bed. Do your homework before you do anything else. I mean, there there were a lot of rules, but that also meant that when you know we went out to dinner, or you know did something together as a family, everything we had a great time. Going back to like, what was your first job? My very first job was cleaning houses um, when I was 12 years old. Um, and I, yeah, I learned how to, I mean, the person I was cleaning for was very, um, had a very set way of doing things, some of which were a little odd, but I, I learned how to clean houses. And then, I used to um, cater people's cocktail parties when I was um, a little older. And then I started teaching tennis. Um, and that was a much better job, frankly, because <laughs> I was outside all the time. And, um, you know, tennis teachers get paid relatively well and you're outside. And you don't really teach much because no one wants to take a lesson between 12 and 3. So you go to the beach, you know. <laughs> so it was really, it was really not bad. And then... Um, did you, like growing up, actually looking back, who were you more like, your mom or your dad? Well, my dad was enormously intellectual. I mean, really, really brilliant and could do, could paint, could, you take him to a Broadway show and he would sit down and play it for you on the piano, even though he couldn't read music, both hands. I mean, he just, he was astonished. He was also tended to be quite impatient with people if he felt like they weren't adding value to the process or weren't very intelligent. I might have picked up a little bit <laughs> of that quality. Um, and my mother, enormously gracious. Everyone loved my mother. Um, and, you know, just really, and actually, I, this story I was just telling someone this morning, uh, at her memorial service, the minister was talking about the fact that my mother um, used to hate the, she was on the altar guild in our church, and she had these beanies. You had to wear these beanies as part of the altar guild, and she really hated the beanies. And one day, they didn't have the collection plate in church. And, and Hugh said, and so I saw that little twinkle that your mother used to get in her eye, and all of a sudden, the beanie became a collection plate. <laughs> <laughs> so that... <laughs> anyway, how did how did their parenting style kind of influence yours, either consciously or what you've seen later? I think the rules part of it. Um, I think Doug and I are probably a lot more. Uh, you know, I think generations change a lot, and I, I think I grew up in an era of much more. Please do it because I said so. Yeah. Versus now, where it, it's a little more. I don't think you should do that because, you know, where, where we would have a more rational or a more explanatory conversation. That's interesting. Yeah, I, might, I might still say no, but, yeah. but I might explain my reasoning for no more than just saying I'm, I'm the parent, therefore. That's cool to hear. What was the experience like at J.P. Morgan and just kind of what was the trajectory and the path that you went down there? So, so I think... Uh, confidence is a really important quality to have, um, particularly if you're going to be a female in finance. And 
luckily for me, I mean, I would say if I was thinking about one thing I took from both of my parents, it was that. I mean, they definitely were big on the, you can pretty much do whatever you want. And if something goes wrong, we're always here for you. So at JP Morgan, I would say, which started out as Chemical Mag, um, you know, it was always having that confidence. It was always looking at something and looking for potentially a better way to do it. So as an example, you know, I was an associate and I had to do this ridiculous project where there was a, um, you know, banks would send in their, their quarterly reports and then we would have to translate them into an Excel spreadsheet and say whether it was like, this was good or bad. It was all ratios and stuff. Yeah. So I was like, there's just got to be a better way to do this. Isn't there some electronic way we can do this? So it turned out there was, and in those days, this is a hundred bajillion years ago, uh, computers had tapes with holes in them. So you could get the tapes that the, that the um, banks would send to the Fed, and then you could build a program and feed them in yourself. And we did that, another associate and I. And then we, and everybody thought it was so cool. Like our boss invited the president of the bank to see it. And that night we crashed the entire chemical bank's computer system. <laughs> <laughs> and um, stayed up all night manually inputting the data. <laughs> but then it did actually work um, after that. And, and it was really cool. Now later, you know, some much more tech savvy person developed a new tool that was way better. But for, you know, just the fact that we thought of it and that we did it and we had the ratios all kind of done. So, you know, I think- Was that like an early life, lesson for you just thinking like, we just have to be different. Like, like con yeah. do you think you consciously on a regular basis, whether it's where you're at now and the position you're at now at Riverside, do you see a history of that in your career of like, actively thinking how to look at something differently you know i probably don't actively think as much as i should look at this differently as there has to be a better way to do this you know this is really inefficient so there's just got there, there has to be a better way than excel and 400 people emailing each other about whether this company's earnings are right there has to be a better way to do that and then we built it um, so, you know, that has definitely been helpful. Um, and that partly that's been a confidence thing, right? That's partly just saying, okay, I'm just going to go do this and hopefully apologize later if it doesn't work, <laughs> but it, it will work. <laughs> I have confidence that it will work. Yeah, I will. I will. Yeah, it will work. <laughs> um, on the shifting a little bit. On the kind of talk, topic of females in finance, what, what have you seen in your 20 plus years in the industry and even maybe in the past 10 within private equity, 10 plus, um, what have you seen in terms of the landscape of women in either investment roles, you know, the evolution of, you know, for example, might have been 10 years ago, people got to associate, then they headed out. And now they've got a partner or you know, and you've seen it develop from the LP perspective. Can you talk more broadly about the evolution of women in finance within private equity? Big topic. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, well, first of all, I did um, 
I did an ACG event in Boston, which was around, was just women in finance, and it was like tips from Cameron, you know, whatever. Um, and so a few of my tips, which they made little bookmarks out of, I think were things that were important to women, which was do not be the person who always plans the company picnic. Right, do and and take up space because when you're when you're in a room and you're talking, take up space. Women have a tendency to have their voice go up at the end of a sentence. Uh, you know, hi Jordan, or I can't even I can't even do it actually. Uh, but don't you know? Don't do that. Don't do the girly like curl your hair with your finger thing. Um, so I think it's important to recognize some of those things that women sometimes have a tendency to do and should not do and aren't aren't self-aware of that. and aren't self-aware and no one tells because there have been so few women in finance there's no one to tell you um to say really you should stop doing that and i was really lucky in my career at jp morgan i had a mentor jimmy lee and the great thing about jimmy was he would tell you i mean and today you probably couldn't do this because of me too and whatever, but he would take you in his office and go, will you please get your stuff together? Because you really screwed that up. What? So that direct, candid feedback from a mentor, right? was, did, was there an right. active mentorship or was it more just like no, a role model? It was just a really role model. Sp- really and spoke it, their mind. I think, actually, this is another thing. I think there's a difference between mentors and sponsors. Because I think mentors are someone you can go to because you have a question about you because you're, you know, a female in a difficult career and you have to travel but you have children and you don't know how to deal with it so I need to find another woman I can talk to about this. That's a little bit more of a mentoring relationship versus a sponsor who does what Jimmy did for me and in a big meeting of senior management says, I think Pam is the right person for that job. You know, and and gets behind it and pushes you, and I think that is really really helpful. Um, what are some other kind of like what organizations do you have you do you belong to or have you seen that are actively talking about you know females in finance? For example, you know, ACG might have their networking events, but what are some other ones that you've seen and other kind of resources for the community to know about? Well, I, I do think that, that Kelly's Pink Light program at PEWIN yeah. is great because, and, and this is the thing that makes me so happy, which is that increasingly there are women starting their own firms. And so as that happens, you know, 10 years from now, the private equity industry won't look the way it looks, at least I hope, um, now, because these women are getting behind their own firms. They're smart about how they're building them. Um, and we have to really help each other a lot. Um, I had drinks with one last night, and um, and she said, I, I've just been astonished at how many people are supporting me. And I think that's because we're all, like, we're rooting for these women to really succeed. Do you think it's finally at that chapter in the evolution where, although the, the, the fund count is not there, the infrastructure is there, in terms of like PE, like Project Pink Light with PE One, like has that accelerator program for like right. you know Kinsey Capital, Suzanne Yoon, right. um, and then the other resources, and then the awareness from the LP perspective. Do you think like the the groundwork has finally been laid, and then this next vintage, you know, once 
I think it's getting there. Um, I think that the reality of the private equity industry is that until the LP community says, um, well, if you have no women, I'm not investing with you regardless of your returns, or you have no diversity, yeah. let's not forget about women, um, it'll be harder to make the change. But I think if you have good returns and you have diversity, then you're an obvious choice. But I mean, I, I was at a, uh, an event Kelly organized actually, and I asked a question to the CIO of a large pension fund, which was, and this pension fund gives an award for the most diverse uh, GP that they have. And so I said, well, let's just suppose we have two funds. One is in the top quartile and one is in the bottom quartile. I mean, they're both top quartile, but one's in the top of the top quartile, one's in the bottom of the top quartile. But the one at the top has no diversity at all, and the one at the bottom won your award. Who gets the money? Yeah. And the top quartile guy still gets the money. So until that changes, it's going to be harder for... It's going to be some mixture of... People who say, this is our mandate, we are going to invest in diversity. And people said, listen, I don't care. My, I have a fiduciary responsibility. And then- I, I think that's right. But I also think that uh, the combination of women and millennials will actually drive change in the work environment. Because I think there have not been enough women to say, you know, it, why does it matter where I work from? As long as I'm getting my yeah. work done. But I think yeah, the millennial yeah, yeah, yeah. generation, you know, is very much behind that, that, and that is their expectation. I and mean, 51 Labs, like, my chief of staff is in San Diego, account right. executive is in Florida, our video, right, exactly. our post-production team is in the Philippines, right. we have videographer in LA, we have videographer here, and guess what, like, right. the machine actually works. Exactly. Um, so that's really cool, because it's like the, as the millennials, um, this generation has grown up with the expectations that... It doesn't matter where doesn't you work. It's more of, are you getting stuff done? Right. Um, that's actually, re- that's really, really good point because then that also allows, you know, women to not leave the workforce. Exactly. To find careers that support whatever either they want, they want right. to stay home, or maybe both parents want to have a little more flexibility. Exactly. And and I actually remember that when I was on the operating committee at J.P. Morgan, we did actually... I, just for my own group, I had this thing where I said, okay, one day a week, this is for all my managers, you have to go do something. I don't care what it is. Go coach a soccer team. Go do whatever it is. And you have to leave at four. And you have to tell everyone you're doing it. And you have to tell everyone why you're doing it. Because I just wanted to create that culture where people felt really comfortable doing that. Um, how have you evolved as a leader and maybe it was a time that you know just messed up and that almost was a an impetus to really change and grow as a person as an individual well hopefully you learn you always learn a ton of things along the way um you know certainly you know i've always liked to be in charge of things um you could you know, since I was like three, so. Uh, but <laughs> what you learn as a leader, I think, is number one, people observe what you're doing a lot more than you realize. So, uh, 
one day I walked into JP Morgan and I, I, I don't know, I was thinking about something else, whatever I was doing, and I didn't say good morning to people. And there had been a series of layoffs. And so my assistant was kind enough to say to me, you know, everyone thinks they're getting laid off because you didn't say good morning to them. And I was like, what? <laughs> so, so you really learn that the, the band narrows a lot in terms of observation of the behaviors that you exhibit. Um, two, I think you have to learn to delegate. Or, and, the, and for me, at least, the tendency is to leap in and want to solve every problem. And you can't do that because A, the people who work for you don't grow. And B, um, you're sending them a message that you don't think they're competent when you do that. So when was that? Was there a particular you know stage in the career when that happened? You're like, wow, I am trying to do too much myself, and I have to I have to train the people around me. You know, I think that sort of evolved over time. Um, I think at various different points. You know, I still have to catch myself because I still have a you know it is my natural tendency to want to just go fix it, and so I, I have to you know go. When you look back on your career, what are what are some of the things that you're most proud of? Oh gosh, things I'm most proud of. <clears throat> you know, it's it's funny because I don't I really think of it much more about my teams than about me in particular. So, you know, I I think I think we have accomplished a lot at Riverside just in building the infrastructure and building out um, Riverside University and building out the portfolio management system. I think I happen to be pretty good at hiring people. So um, I'm proud of the fact that I have hired really great people and um, so, and so eventually they don't really need you anymore because they're, you know, they're great people. So you have Maybe to a different way to say this different. is like, or different topics. Like, what do you think your your like Pam's superpower is? Oh, superpower! Yeah, I think I am really good at hiring people. Um, you know, I think I've been able to to judge pretty quickly whether a person has fire in the belly and is able to do it. And I think I am a good communicator. I think I speak pretty well, which has served me well, especially in these positions like chairman of the ACG board. Um, I'm on the executive committee of the American Investment Council, uh, which is a, you know, it's a fairly male-dominated um, group. So the ability to hold your own and say something in front of a lot of people 